iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. What'd they say? You have to listen twice. Larry crowned at the common break area? It's Employee of the Month Day. How many will this oh, be? Oh, I'm not saying nine. Larry Crown on deck. Crown. Mm. With time to a parting of the ways. This sounds like you're firing me. They said it's because I didn't go to college. Get you some knowledge and you'll be fireproof. You're never too old to learn. Can you get this hunk of junk working? How fast does it go? Go, It's got power! Didn't see you in the scooter pit last term. You're an ex-cop. Why would you think that? Tucking in a polo shirt makes you look like one. This is it. Excuse me. The state requires a minimum of 10 students, so this class is canceled. Thanks. Does this be shoe 17? Each of you will tell us how to do something you already know how to do. How to prepare French toast. Next. <laughs> I gotta take this. Mm. Brain freeze. I wonder if I make any difference to anyone sitting in my classroom. Look up at your audience. Find three different focal points. Start on one side, looking into the eyes of whoever's there. Hello. You are way cooler than you appear. I can't really afford all these new threads. It is gratis. Take off your pants. My boyfriend's here. Put your pants back on. Uh, uh, uh. Look who's waiting for a bus. Do you need a ride? Fine, but I will not wear that bucket on my head. In the Navy, I went around the world five times, but I would never be able to communicate it to you unless I had taken a class like this. You work here. It's my secret identity. Spectacular. Would you like to kiss me? You are so cute, I can see you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Donna Freakin of USA Today, and tonight's guest, Tom Hanks. Hey, uh, hi, hi, how are you? They're hi, all Don. excited to see me, so yeah, I don't know why. Hey, who saw them? the movie? Who enjoyed it? Nobody saw the movie. It's not open yet, but let's add. Man, have I dumped a lot of money in this store. <laughs> I have pumped a lot of money into the Apple economy in this very store. Going back... To that first iPod that only held 11, what, uh, uh, thousand songs. Remember when that was a big deal? That, yeah. Holds a thousand songs. You know what I'm doing with that iPod right what? now? It's holding up some stereo speakers. As it Just should jammed be. underneath the thing. So Thank you for coming, everybody. You guys, Tom just finished a harrowing global press tour to support this movie. How are you so peppy and upbeat after this? If, well, I, were, if I were you, I'd be crawling under a couch. Uh, you only really work half a day. You get up about 5.45 in the morning, and you do all the talk shows and stuff, and then you're done about your lunchtime, and then you get on a plane, and you go to another city. It's not that bad. Coal mining and being a cop, that's tough work. This is not so hard. All right. Well, this movie is incredibly sweet and uplifting and funny. How, what inspired the story for you? I don't know. Uh, I mean, that's weird. Yeah. We're just ca always pondering a, a, you know, a type of idea. It's, it's really about the, the theme of the movie 
uh, has to be a theme that you uh, think can withstand the attention of having a movie made about it. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was all about the, the, uh, the, the American concept of self-determination and reinvention. A lot is made out about the American dream being owning a home or, or, or you're raising a family, but I think really the, the American dream in, in actuality is about our ability to remake who we are if we want to uh, and if we have to. And in that regard, I, six years ago, I mm-hmm. was chatting around the office with Nia Vardalos, who wrote My Big Fat Greek Wedding. She's a friend. Uh, and I said, yeah, what if I, was, what if I was a guy and I lost my job for kind of reasons and I never went to college, and so I go to college and say, Julia Roberts is my teacher. What would happen? She was uh, actually my teacher in college. It's funny that you say that. So, was she? Yeah, what'd she yeah. teach for you? Home sex ed. Oh, yeah, sex yeah. ed. Oh, very good. Mm. So that was how... That was, uh, so when you say, it's not like you start off with this thing that you must, 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 must cover. It was just an idea that I thought, if we could develop this, and this could actually be uh, a motion, you know, a, a two-hour, three-act mm-hmm. structured movie that could actually be about something without being, um, you know, having all the weight of the world upon it. How did you and Nia develop the story as writers? Uh, first, we talked at length for about a month about possibilities. Then she went off for a few months and wrote a full draft. Then I read that and pondered it. Then we got back again and, and spoke at length about that draft and its strength and weaknesses and, and how it was ex, uh, experimenting with the, with the theme. And she, we, that went on for about three years and three drafts out of... Uh, I mean, that's just the way it yeah, works. Yeah. You can't, you know, first of all, we weren't getting paid for doing this. So this was all written on mm-hmm. spec. So it's not like a, uh, a, 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 uh, a money uh, uh, a cash flow is actually going on. Um, uh, and then, quite frankly, it had to lay fallow because it wasn't there. It wasn't in our heads, and we all went off and did some other things. Then about two years later, I guess, not long after uh, I, I had finished uh, making uh, Angels and Demons with Ron Howard, the second Robert Langdon movie, uh, I picked it up again and said, what really is here? And then I did all the drafts that remained of that and, uh, until we made the film. As a writer, how do you know when something works? I don't know. I don't think you do. I think you wait and you, you have to hear it. I mean, we had, we had two very important read-throughs of, of very, uh, uh, various versions of the screenplay that are very different from the final film because you're waiting to hear not only what are the lines that re- re- resonate and, and, and might be funny that mm-hmm. might get laughs, but you're also hearing whether or not you're, it's really about the thing you wanted it to be about, whether or not the scenes are actually um, dictating to the performers and... and impacting the, the, the air of the, of the read-through in a way that makes you think, oh, you, act, you actually did say something important and, and knew about what that, uh, what that very theme was. Go ahead. Oh. Well, like, for example, <laughs> the, oh, this, is, this is like the process is, um, we had a read-through of the film, I'm guessing, three, two years ago, I can't remember, uh, uh, yeah, long time ago, in which um, Chai McBride, who I worked with on uh, um, The Terminal, played uh, this part by Cedric mm-hmm. the Entertainer and a few others. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a whole panoply of, uh, of uh, actors who were a friend of mine uh, who had worked for us to come in and just, just to read through it and see what it sounded like. And from that, uh, there were drastic changes to what happens to Larry in the third act of the motion picture. One of them being, we had, uh, we had engineered it, I did, uh, in which Larry was able to still keep his house and still get the girl. 
and it it, it it was a huge gap in it. And right afterwards, Nia Vardala said, Larry has to lose his house. And that is, well, then that's going to completely go deeper in examining the theme that we, that we thought of. And it's actually a hideous process to have written it and then hear it, and it just does not work. It's, it's disastrous. You want to upchuck. Yeah. You want to throw up. You want to apologize to everybody. Two years of your life. Two years, yeah, gone. But yeah, that's, what the, that's what the whole process is, and you... you <clears throat> You feel bad for about seven minutes, and then you start, a, you start pulling out the notebook, and you get to work. And in terms of the subject matter, it's obviously very prescient, given what... Are you they know, drinking are, downstairs, or just the no, noise? No, they're just, just that like excited this. to this hear is, you. This is as noisy as the Golden Globes. But and the Golden Globes are all Has hitting the booze bar. in the back of yeah. the hotel, and I guess they're just shooting them, them mm, shopping you know, downstairs. And no Paris Hilton here, so that we know of. Um, but the subject matter is obviously very prescient, given our great economy at the moment. Was that... Was that what triggered this? Well, that caught up with this because we, I wanted to just to go to the idea of a guy who got out of high school, joined the Navy, mm-hmm. did almost 20 years, and because of that, he loses his job. That was, that was the mm-hmm. dichotomy that I thought was fascinating to deal with. And he's got nothing to do, literally nothing to do with his day. So that's why he goes back to college, and we, we kept feeding on that. As the economy tanked by way of, what were they called, uh, bundled... Uh, what is it? The yeah, yeah, bundled yeah. derivatives, credit blah, blah, swaps, blah, blah. whatever. Yeah, well, we said, well, let's never mind that. Let's just make it totally personal to Larry. And, and in personal, it's, it's your house mm-hmm. and whether or not you put gas in your car and whether or not you can even afford to go to college mm-hmm. in the first place. So the, the headlines sort of caught up with this right up until we were actually shooting the movie. I want to apologize if you've heard any of these stories so far. I have been around the world and I've told some of this to journalists in like Singapore and Korea. Um, so if you've heard it, if you're, if you're from Singapore or Korea and heard this, I apologize. Um, uh, a couple of the weeks, actually a few days before we shot the scenes in the bank uh, with uh, Rita Wilson, my wife. Um, oh, you haven't seen the movie. Uh, anyway, okay, let me go back. Let me go back. On 60 Minutes, I saw a report on uh, strategic foreclosures. Okay. Which is a way in order, what you essentially do is you hand your house back to the bank and say, screw you, I'm not in debt to you anymore, you own my house, I have no credit, but bye-bye, it's your problem, not mine. And that now is something that Larry learns to do in his uh, economics class that is taught by Dr. Matsutani, who is portrayed by George Takei. Takei. Takei, sorry. That's all right. And I have to ask you, speaking of the, the initial bank scene, your yes. wife looks smoking in that wig. Good oh, sorry, wig. don't mean to give it away, but how... I find that a wig and high heels usually just uh, raise the attention span of almost every man in the, in the room. Especially a wig like that. Am Truly. I wrong, ladies? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> this movie is such... It's, it's a really nice addition to this normal summer slate of movies uh, of the Transformers ilk. Was this always meant as a summer release? Well, um, there's no such thing as... Um, uh, a time when big blockbusters don't come out anymore. It yeah. used to be that the big kind of like special effects laden movies started coming yeah. out on the anniversary mm-hmm. of Star Wars in 1970, you know, the mm-hmm. memorial. Mm-hmm. And now I think you, everybody knows that pretty much every week there's some big massive movie that's coming out with a lot of CGI. Mm-hmm. So when it came time, when you got to go off and have meetings with like the executives and the marketing people and they start thinking about the strategy of when, when do you think we should release? And I said, look, I don't fucking care. 
care. Just put the movie... Hey, now, sorry. Drop the F-bomb. I apologize to any kids out there. But when they said, well, how about... I said, what's wrong with July 1st? Go ahead. There's no difference. Because big movies come out all the time. I mean, if you just add it up, what's been out since May 1st, you know? You know, you got Thor and, and, and Trent, you know, and the thing with a deal and the guy and the rocket head. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We Trent, can go on yeah, and on. The, you're the right. Guy, you're right. Yeah. And the, now the, the monsters with the robots and smash And it the up. dogs or something. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's every week. So uh, the only way you could compete, honestly, in the marketplace is if you have, you know, a movie that might be unique. And the, I can get it here. There's no movies like Larry Crown no, that there are aren't. out there. None. None I have to whatsoever. see movies for a living, I promise you. No. They're not. Yeah. No. And we, and, and we go against the grain over so many things. For example, Larry's uh, helmet. We shot it in California, okay? These are, the, these are the battles you fight. You shot it in California. We had huge, big, massive production meetings about whether or not Larry and the scooter squad, the people who ride the scooters, are going to wear helmets or not. Oh, but that's a because safety. Oh, that's a, a safety a bad issue, message. and it's the law. But yeah. then you talk to the people, like the hair people, come in and say, "Tom, you just have to know that every time you put on that helmet, it's going to mess up your hair, and we'll need ten minutes in order to fix the hair before you go on in the next shot. So you cannot pull up in a shot, take off your helmet, and stop talking. You know, you can't do that. And then you then you talk to the prop department and say, "We don't know if we can get the clearance on the certain helmets that." You, so we so we just said, "Well, just wear the helmets." And my my hair is bad. My hair is bad. We're not going to worry about whether how anybody. And if you see any movie or TV show with people on motorcycles, I guarantee you, either they don't wear helmets, which is against the law, because the stars don't want their hair messed up, or they cut away from. Them. Or they always pull up with their helmets on, and there's always a cut away. So that they come back and they don't actually have the helmet on. They're just lifting it off the top of their head because, lo and behold, their hair is perfect underneath the helmet. So that's the logic of how that happened. It's, it's kind of like everybody who comes back from the grocery store in a movie always has some celery sticking out of the, plant, the bag because how would you know where they've been? They or a container you know, of milk. Or a container yes. of milk, yeah, or, or a loaf of French bread. The things you learn. I'm giving up all the secrets here. All the secrets. Where did you guys find that moped or scooter? Is uh, it a we moped? Found that we, we shot this on location at Cal State Dominguez Hills. Uh, and we went and scouted the actual, well, where do they park the scooters? And they parked them right here. And this blue Yamaha from, what year was it? 1990-something? It was held together by gaffer's tape. And I said, this is Larry oh, yeah. Crown's scooter. So we left a note on it. It said, dear scooter owner. I'm Tom Hanks, and I'm making a movie, da-da-da. Please call this number, and we will, you will earn big bucks because uh, we want to buy your scooter. This is not a joke. No lie. Please call. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we are not pulling your leg. And eventually the guy did call, and lo and behold, he's a former serviceman, much like Larry. He was going back to school, much like Larry, and he made $60,000 off of us. For I'm joking. I am so joking. We paid him handsomely for a, for a, a scooter that needed a lot of work. <laughs> Call me if you ever need one. I'll buy a scooter I'll and sell you. it to you, you know? Any sc who's rides a scooter here? Anybody? There you go. Hipsters. Uh, Full-on hipsters. And let's talk about directing a little bit before we turn, turn this over to the audience. Did you always plan to direct? No, I did not. I, I went to... Uh, we, we worked on the screenplay for a long time, and before I took it over and actually started writing the screenplay myself, I went to a number of directors who shall remain nameless. And, and here's what you must understand. The worst thing a director can hear from an actor is, hey, I've got this idea for a movie I'd like to star in. Directors will run away from you faster than uh, The Flash or Green Lantern. Uh, they don't want to have anything to do 
with an actor who has an idea about a movie they want to make. Directors want to make their own ideas into movies. They don't want to have to appease an actor or listen to an actor or say, you know, maybe in the third act, Larry can lose his house. They don't want to, they don't want to hear any of that. They want to make their own movie, and the directors want to boss you around. They don't want to be an employee. So all the directors that I talked to said, yeah, that, uh, that uh, you know, that might, yeah, that could be, why don't you send me what you have? And then, they, then you never hear from them again. Because nobody, nobody wants to do this. So it evolved into a place where selfishly as an actor, I didn't want to let Larry Crown go or just dissolve into nothing. And it got to a place where it was so much in my head from writing it that you really do have to declare, all right, if possible, I would like to direct this movie. And if possible is a big deal because you have to raise the financing based on an unproven uh, quantity, which is can you this guy direct a movie? There's a lot of people who don't want to give that money up. Well, I directed once before, and it was a fine movie, but it wasn't, it's a long time ago, and there's no, you know, the, 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 the returns now in the motion picture industry are brutal. It's, it's a much harder game. Uh, and then also, it's like, will I have the stamina in order to do it? And quite frankly, 18 months of preparation, it was okay. okay. Well, great. I'm sure you guys have some questions. I know How do we they, do this? They have uh, microphones that they're going to pass around. Okay. I have one right over here to your right. All right. Does everybody who works in a computer store wear a blue shirt, or is it, I mean, is it every possible computer outlet has blue-shirted people? Do you guys, like, have fist fights with the Geek Squad guys when you see each other on the subway on the way home from work because they're PC and you're Apple? I'm just asking. I would. Well, it's obvious when. Because I think PCs are pieces of shit. That's what I think they are. I dropped the S-bomb now. I apologize. <laughs> yes, your Hi, question. Um, my name is Jasmine, and I just wanted to know um, how much you take past criticisms into account when you're writing a screenplay. Well, none. I mean, there, there's no such thing as criticism, I think, when you're writing a screenplay. There is just reaction, and all reaction is valid. You know, you're, you're talking about a, 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 a piece of uh, a cre a creative output that is in flux, and the question is, is, do you get it? Does it resonate? Did it make sense to you? Do you is there something ephemeral that, that comes out of it? Did anybody ever read the book by William Goldman called, I think it's called Nobody Knows Anything? Anybody? It's a, it's a, okay, you have. So you know what I'm talking about. He gave these ideas, he gave this one particular idea of an adaption to a bunch of different screenwriters, and they all came in with different takes on what it is, and they're all valid. So when you're in the process of giving your script over and you're saying, okay, I've written on this enough. I don't know what to do now. I need input from somebody else. It's not criticism that you're getting. It's literally just reaction. And you can take it. You can forget it. You can believe it. You can, you can follow it. it. You can choose to let it hurt your feelings or not. But what it really is, it's not an assault on your ego, on your output. It's, it's they've read the movie. They've seen the movie in their heads. And, and maybe it, it doesn't resonate the way you quite think it is. I've talked to a lot of people that have said, uh, a lot of times, and Mr. Hanks, I have written this really great screenplay. And I always say, how do you know? 
you think it's great, but if it, ha- it can't withstand the scrutiny of somebody else reading it, you got a problem. So there is no such thing as criticism. You listen to everything, and you take everything into account. Whether or not you follow or not, it's got to be your own, your own ideal for what the story's going to be. Well, do you have someone, like a reader in your life that you always, that, that looks at something first and that, that you really trust? No, no. Uh, I have plenty of people that do that at, at, the, at the Playtone World Headquarters, which is a 17-story building in Santa Monica, California, which, if you press the right button, unfolds into a robot and attacks other buildings. Um, There is a constant flurry of activity, and there's always people who have read stuff that is interesting, and even also read source material uh, that can or cannot be turned into something that's great. For example, a long time ago, um, somebody had read this great article in, I think, the I want to say the Miami Herald or the Boston Globe or maybe the New York Times. And it was about this taxi cab company in Miami that was going out of business, that was being forced out of business. And it was the only taxi cab that served this really rough part of Dade County. And I thought, that's a great, that's a great story. That came out of a newspaper article. And then we follow, go ahead and pursue that. There's a lot of people that read scripts and say, hey, here's a pretty good, pretty good script. But by and large, reading scripts is homework. It's, it really is homework. It has to be... Uh, uh, you, you have to sit down and not read it as a piece of literature, but read it as this visual blueprint. And if it doesn't work, you know, there's nothing you can, there's nothing you can do for it. We have a question to your left. How you doing, Ms. Hanks? Uh, my question was kind of on the same line as the script. Is uh, What do you find personally paramount in a screenplay, like personally to you, as like the story or the characters or how it flows. I, I would say, I would say, I, I get what you say because there's some, there's some that are really crackerjack. I mean, I, there's a lot of people out there who are very, very facile that are writing screenplays, and you read them really quick. You can read them in 40 minutes and say, "Wow, I, I saw the movie in my head. It was great." It's the theme that it's examining more, more than anything else. And you know, there's been times that I thought this is a great script because it's examining the theme of blank. And it turns out it didn't. <laughs> I thought it did, but it wasn't the theme that the director was examining or really what the, uh, what the, uh, uh, the movie had deep inside its bones. You're always, there are always going to be funny lines. There's always going to be cool stuff that you get, you get to see. And there's going to be screenplays that, that at the, at the, at, as of page 7, you don't want to read anymore. And if it gets past page 7, you'll take it up to page 30. And you might not want to read it anymore. But if you get to page 30, because there's always... You got, who's, who here are, are screenwriters, more or less, are considered? Everybody knows that there has to be that page 30 incident, you know, that then propels the rest of it. So um, sc- screenplays sometimes fall apart just in that they are, they are written in this kind of form that, that does not translate to the, your, your own visual skills. Um, whether or not it has a theme in there that is that is truly being examined is uh, uh, is sometimes lost in the literally the mechanics of uh, of writing a writing a screenplay. But I I will look all the time, really, to well, what's this thing talking about? What is it about? Because not only do you have to then go through the work of making the movie as a creative artist, but then you have to go off and talk about it around the world and embrace it. Um, and, it, and, and that that's no easy chore. And then it also is going to last forever, whether it's good or bad. You know, and I've made some really bad movies that are still out there that are still being seen by people. Um, and I, I want to kill all the people. Oh, and a guy is holding up a copy of one right now. The Burbs? Is that the Burbs? What is it? The Green Mile. No, that's a good movie. That's a, that's a fine movie there. I got no, I got no complaints about that. 
We have one right over here to your right. Yeah. Um, hey, Mr. Hanks. Um, first of all, I saw you once in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I didn't want to bother you with this question, but I figured I'd bother you now. Where were we? Were at the Chateau Drugs, the Java on 4th? I was at the Warm Springs Lodge. Warm Springs Lodge. Yes, beautiful place. So you ate lunch right next to me. And so I've always... Did I have the Caesar salad, or was I going for, like, the fish tacos? I'm feeling chicken Caesar salad. Chicken Caesar yeah. salad. Is you, good. That, yeah. It's a fine, it's a fine, uh, fine Yeah, fine you lunch. seemed really satisfied with your meal, I'm sure. But, um, so I've always wanted to ask you, um, out of all the films you've done, I love you as an actor, out of all the films you've done, which one are you most proud of? What do you consider your masterpiece at this point? If you well, have well, okay, I get that's an easy question to ask, and God bless you. But you know, I made a lot of movies, and they're all intense personal experiences that make me lose sleep and take a really long time, and sometimes are absolutely heartbreaking in their final analysis, and other times are are so good that I can't even believe that I'm in such a thing. Uh, and I, they, it, I, I guess in order to give you a bona fide answer, which is isn't fair question, you little prick, in order to ask me in a public place. <laughs> But I will, I, will nonetheless, I will nonetheless answer the question because they've all, they're all like, they, they have all been magnificent labors of love. And I don't, I don't want to, I won't say Larry Crown because it would just be too, too friggin' cheesy. Or to say, but um, Castaway took eight years for us to figure out how to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't waste time. Don't waste time. Um, and, and it was a perfect example of the three people that are necessary in order to make the, the, the movie come to life. I had this idea about a guy who in, uh, goes down on an island when he's working for FedEx. Bill Broyles was the only writer I ever mentioned this to who understood that there was really drama to be found in a guy having to suss out the necessities of life, which is shelter, fire, food, and water, and company. So the two of us were able to come up with a fabulous idea and a really good uh, draft of a screenplay right up about to page 66, and then we were lost. We didn't know how to get off the island. We started doing things like, hey, pirates come, and uh, hey, uh, Elle McPherson and the swimsuit models from Sports Illustrated show up, and uh, we were just trying to figure out anything, and it wasn't until Bob Zemeckis, the director, came in. Uh, and we talked to him about, uh, at one point, and he came back a year later and said, yeah, I've been thinking about that uh, island movie of yours. You know what you got to do is, and he had the solution in order to go. So I would have to say that I, I think I've been very lucky. I, I, made, you know, my, I made about 30 movies, and I think seven of them are pretty good, and I think, that, I think that's one. That's my joke. I'm being self-deprecating, which is part of my charm. So sit down, you little prick, and uh, next time you pay for the Caesar salad. We have a question straight back. Yes, yes. Um, Mr. Hanks, in your movie... You don't hold it Oh, okay, sorry. I'm like, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> when you come in like that, I can hear almost okay. every word you say. Okay, you. okay. In your uh, wonderful movie in Philadelphia, you had the scene after your uh, party... When Denzel Washington was sitting over here watching you, you were holding on to your IV. And I think it was Maria Callas's music, perhaps? It yes, was from Andrea Chenier, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, it was exquisite. But I've never seen a scene where I thought the character, you, was so lost in the beauty of the music and in what you were going through as an individual uh, and your suffering. So if I could 
I think I would always want to see that scene again because well, it was so exquisite. I can tell you an interesting thing about the subject that you're actually bringing up. Usually making a movie like that in which music is playing that people are hearing, they are not able to play while you're shooting the scene. They start it up and then they stop it and you have to imagine what's going on because it gets on the track, the audio track. And in order to cut that together, they have to not only cut to picture, but they have to cut to sound, which is an almost an impossible thing to do. It's very hard. So we shot that scene about 3 o'clock in the morning in Philadelphia. And I, had, uh, I, you know, I'd been, I was familiar with the piece. And we were talking with Jonathan Demme and Chris. Hey, whoa, hey who, did this, who did the sound on uh, Chris Jenkins? No, was that his name? Chris Jenkins, the sound mixer. Thank you. Chris Jenkins, the sound mixer. And we were down, we were trying to figure out, well, how do we do this? This is an incredibly evocative piece of music. Are we actually going to do that thing where we start it and then stop it? And I have to say, oh, because I have dialogue in it. And if you have dialogue in it, that really, that really limits what you can do with that footage. And we were thinking about, well, maybe, we'll, maybe we could start it a little bit. And Chris, Chris said, I have a thing called a miracle ear. It's a little earwig uh, uh, speaker that... Maybe I can broadcast it into your ear, but it's going to be weird because I'm going to be coming in one. And Jonathan Demony, to his credit, said, how about we just turn the music up and shoot it? And that's how we did it. So the music was blaring throughout all of that scene. So it was not that difficult to become lost in Maria Callas' aria because we were listening to Maria Callas' aria. And that is completely, rarely the way that you, that you make movies. The only other time that I know of from somebody, John Candy told me a long time ago that in um, Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, uh, John Hughes threw all those rules away and just played the music really loud and, and let him go to it with the music in it. So usually uh, the filmmakers would not have the, uh, the courage to do that. So yeah. thank you very it much. It was exquisite, though. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We have enough time for two more questions. The first question is right here in the center in the back, all the way in the back right here. There you go. I see. There you go. Hi, Mr. Hanks. My name's Leah. Um, I was wondering, what kind of advice would you give to future hopeful actors or filmmakers? Well, I think we live a very interesting time because you're actually in a store that sells products to make it possible for you to do anything you want to in a, in, 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 as a filmmaker, a screenwriter, an animator, or, or also an actor. Uh, the only advice I can give anybody is to do it all the time. Do not wait for someone to invite you into the creative process. If you want to be a screenwriter, don't wait for somebody to say, hey, you know that idea you had? I'll give you $10. Sit down and write it. If you want to make a movie, you know how to work uh, MacBook Pro. And I don't know. I don't know how to do it, but my crack staff knows how to do it. Uh, you can edit it yourself. You can make it all happen. There are people right now that are sitting on the edge of their bed making movies on their MacBooks and they're going to be seen by somebody. They'll be on YouTube, or they'll be on uh, iTunes, or they'll just send it out as friends. And those, those believe it or not, those we've all seen like viral videos that have gone all around, like that girl that sang about Friday. You know, what was her name? You know, we've all seen that, yep, right? Yep. Okay. And there's plenty of others that you get to do anything you want to now, and it will actually exist. Let me just tell you like a, a quick story about. I'm going to drop names now. Do you mind, Steven Spielberg? Who? Steven Spielberg. Is that is that a Steven friend of Steven Spielberg. He used is he to. Wait, is he like a director? He's a, he's a he's a he's a he, actually he's a buddy that uh, I'm always lawn every other week and uh, he comes back around. Uh, when in the old days, of course, he's inundated with 
with movies, right? He would get stacks and stacks and stacks of, Dear Mr. Spielberg, I've written this screenplay. And he would throw them all away because at the end of the day, any, with, with a, enough uh, acumen or, or, or time, you can write a screenplay. But if someone sent him as much as a seven-minute, eight-millimeter film that they made, that they cut together, he would watch all of them. He saw every short film that ever came through his office because those people did everything. They made the movie, they got the friends to do it, they shot it, they cut it, they did the due diligence. Now, that was hard to do in 1978 or 1985, but if, if you've got a creative bone in your body now, you can make almost any movie that you want to somehow. If you have a theme you want to examine or a beat you want to show or even a talent you want to expose, you can do it. The other example of this is a great one is Moby, who is a, a Grammy Award winning uh, uh, musician. His first album, he literally, I, he, I heard him interviewed, he said, I never thought anybody would listen to a record that I made sitting on the edge of my bed, you know, late at night on his, uh, on his computer. So my advice to anybody is, just do it. Just do it every chance you get. Do it everywhere you can. And you'd be amazed what can happen when somebody sees your, somebody sees your work. Last question, second row. Hi, Mr. Hanks. My name is Emily. I wanted to ask you if you could revisit any of your wonderful roles in a sequel, which would you choose and why? Uh, well, the only ones that we've done uh, kind of like uh, made sense. I mean, the toy Woody and the Toy Stories, those are actually completely independent movies. So they're odd to call them sequels, but they are. And that's because it just makes sense. Toys never die, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and, the, and they never cease to have exam exam uh, adventures, and the people at Pixar are kind of geniuses. The Da Vinci Code movie and Angels of Demons, that that's almost like a Sherlock Holmes film, you know. It's the same guy, and he's got the, a, a different kind of case. Um, the, I've made other movies that have been, quote-unquote, successful, and they would like to have sequels to them, but they don't warrant it, quite frankly. The character um, would just be in the same circumstance Again, you wouldn't be able to examine the theme unless you did it all again. So um, there's a there's this. I heard this thing about um, uh, studio executives. No executive has ever been fired for green lighting a sequel, which is true because it's easy. Hey, that one made money. Make another one. I'll do it again. Um, it'll be fine. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I have not done any any film beyond the ones that were it was sort of like built into the dna of the character in the movie that i think warranted having a sequel made there was a lot of pressure in order like you know what do you, you want to make remake forrest gump or uh, uh league of their own or something like that I, I don't know how to do it i don't know why to do it it would probably just be some version of the same movie you just made and so honestly what's the point i got better better things to do but they figure there's a built-in audience so it'll make money well i mean we yeah, i mean it's yeah. everybody knows yeah. now and some sequels are great and some sequels yeah. aren't but you know it it's okay it is. Yeah. this is the way it works well thank you guys so much thank and you very thank much you, tom hanks thank you thank you Thank you, guys, and thank you again so much to Tom Hanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, the film Larry Crown, everywhere, July 1st. That's this Friday, guys. This Friday, Larry Crown comes out. So thank you very much again. Have a wonderful, wonderful afternoon and evening, and we'll see you next time.